the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 394 for Monday, April 30th, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome back to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, we provide some answers, we go through it all together, and... All is one. We learned something new, at least one thing, perhaps five, about the Mac and Apple products and, and maybe just life in general. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fearful, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing, John? Great. That's good. So uh, today's show is going to be a little bit like Stump the Geek. And, and it, at first I was like scratching my head like, ah, whatever. But uh, but now I actually I'm, I'm excited about it. So as you may have heard, maybe I said this in, in 393 premium. So so perhaps uh, most of you uh, that, are, that don't listen to the premium show haven't heard this. But uh, being that I was away last week and and, you know, today was my first day back at the desk. I, I knew that prepping the show was going to, you know, uh, be competing for time for me with, you know, digging out from everything else that I needed to from being out, away for a week. So I asked John to prep the show. And uh, and and of course, we didn't really go through what that meant. And so John's idea of prepping the show was was radically different from from mine. And it was a perfect example of, of humans. I'm, and and uh, I'm radical, man. Well, it, well, it's just I mean, it's just the way we all we all think differently. So. Um, so I, I, John sent me the show and I realized that he had prepped it and, and you did, you built the agenda and, and it was awesome, but you didn't for you, maybe only half the questions you did research on the answers. So many of these are, were unresearched. Now we talked through a lot of them on, uh, during pre-show, but, uh, but it kind of is the way we used to do things. We've gotten into more and more of a prep mode over the last seven years, but when we first started and first started doing the Q and a shows, which started with episode three, I believe, uh, which is kind of crazy to say. Really? Yeah. Three? Yeah. Yeah. Cause so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I won't tell the story cause it, I don't want to ruin the illusion. Oh, I'll, I'll tell the story. What the heck? Uh, so the first, we did, when we did the first show, our intention was not to do this as a, a Q and a show. Obviously that's what it's become and that's what it is. Uh, and we talk about other things too, but, but obviously our focus is, is on helping you solve your, your problems and, and answering your questions. But the first show we came up with a topic and it was, I want to say tiger. Uh, and, and so, and we recorded that show like three different times. And so that was pretty, frankly, pretty stale when, when the first one came out. And then the second one, we came up with some other topic and I honestly don't remember, but of course you could look cause it's right there. And then the third one, I thought, well, you know, crud, we got to come up with another topic. And I thought, well, you know, I, I had done that ask Dave column years before uh, we ever started doing the geek gab, but I would, I would still get questions into it. Occasionally I said, Oh John, let's go to the mailbag, you know? And uh, so I just pulled a bunch of questions out of ask Dave. Uh, I think we might've had one or two, maybe from listeners of the, of the podcast, but we'd only had two episodes out and we were still building up listenership. And so we, we, I said, we go to the mailbag. And so we just pulled all these questions out and we answered the questions. And of course that started the flood of email that really, frankly, has gone on unabated for the last seven years. So, uh, so it, that, that was sort of how we stumbled into this, this Q and a thing. That's a long, right. little, yeah, well, no, I'm with you. No. And yeah. that we, when we started, we thought that the show would be about what interests us. us. Right. <laughs> 
and and it quickly morphed. And again, thank you so much to our you know, community here. Give everybody a you know big group hug here. Is that it quickly turned from what interests Dave and I to what is important to you and what's important to you is the questions that you all send in. Now, in my defense here, I didn't realize the amount of work that went into creating an agenda. So yes, a lot of the things that that I put together were unanswered and Dave and I quickly, um, well, within an hour or so, uh, you know, address them. And and I think it's going to be more stump the geek because I I didn't do nearly the amount of prep that you did. Right. But, but that, or you do, right. But that prep is something, um, you know, my intention for having you do it was, was twofold. One was the stated reason of just freeing up my morning today and it did that. Mm. So perfect. But number, but number two was, you know, it's good for us to switch jobs every now and then, but, but not just for the reason of appreciating that, which the other one does. There's also benefit in having someone else do your job for you because they're going to approach it differently and might in fact, find a better way to get the workflow done. Now, I'm not saying that coming into the show unprepared is better, uh, but it does. It, our pre-show today was more like the pre-show we used to do four years ago than than what it's become now. We, we typically come in very, very prepared. We run through the agenda very, very quickly, if at all, to be honest. And then mm-hmm. we talk about other stuff for anywhere from like 20 to, I don't know, 40 minutes. And then we start the show. Uh, but today's pre-show was very much what it used to be like, like, OK, hey, we've got these questions. Let's, you know, sift through them. And and we even filtered some out and we said, OK, well, this one's this and stuff. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that. Uh, let's get to Craig. Let's just do this. Shall we, John? Surely. OK. Oh, actually, no. We're <laughs> See, there you go. There I go again. Actually, let's start with some follow up and, and let's go to uh, let's go to we'll start with James. Because uh, we want to talk about a couple of things that we talked about, follow up on a couple of things we talked about in previous shows. So, John, uh, James writes, I uh, just listened to Matt Geek Up 392, where Dave reported having the Java virus and how he removed it from his computer. I was wondering, though, if the virus would still exist on his backups, i.e. Time Machine and Carbon Copy Cloner. And if so, how would you remove it from those? Mr. Braun, any thoughts on this? Because I'm sure he's right. It it, it exists or existed uh, on, on my backups at that point in time. Fantastic question. And so I dug into this and would appreciate feedback from people because I, I learned a few things. So while you were away, Dave, so one thing that I did is I installed <sighs> Gasp. And I know people will shake their fists at this, but I installed per recommendation of... Um, Someone on Twitter, I'll, I'll get back to who it was exactly if I can find it. But um, so I decided to install antivirus on both my Macs here. And I went with a recommendation of uh, someone that I met recently uh, hooked up with on Twitter. And so I installed the Sophos okay. uh, Home antivirus, which is a free antivirus for the Mac. Now, to get to the, the, the reason that I think both you and I, Dave, uh, are skeptical about these things is that uh, I would classify the antivirus programs into two categories. One I will call passive. And that's something that I had been running for a while. I think I've been running virus barrier express. Okay. Which I'm going to categorize as more of a passive in that you can say, scan my disc and look for bad things. Um, it is available through the Mac app store and, and, uh, and you can schedule it to run. But from what I can tell, this is, again, I'm going to call it passive in that it's not sitting there looking over your shoulder. 
Right. Watching everything you do, telling you if something bad happens, which is probably the best approach. But I think both you and I, Dave, and I think the the uh, <laughs> the scoundrel here is probably when you and I both ran Norton in the early days. Well, it, it uh, or, or any any program that injects itself into the operating system and looks over your shoulder at files that are being written has the potential to, number one, slow things down and number two. To, to violently crash your machine. And I think that was a, that was at least in the past, my experience with the Norton product. And that that's I definitely am coming from the same spot. Um, my most of my experience with antivirus software. I mean, the last time I ran antivirus software on a Mac was system seven. Right. But uh, and it was disinfectant and it did that. Right. It was running all mm-hmm. the time watching everything. But then, of course, I, I did a lot of troubleshooting and stuff on the Windows side. And and that's what most of the windows stuff does. And you, you need that. If you have the level of viruses that exists on the windows side, you need it constantly checking, but by doing so it is intentionally getting in your way, right? I mean, it has to look at every file that you're launching or opening and make sure that there's no virus in it. So it, it, by definition, it has to slow you down. And that's sort of been my problem with it is I don't want to have to do that if I don't have to, um, and certainly Windows machines, they run faster without antivirus software. I don't recommend it at all because they won't run faster for long, but they do run faster without it. So uh, so that's why I, I choose not to run it on my Mac and I'm still not running it. And I still think that's the right decision. But uh, I, I certainly understand where you're coming from. Well, the thing is, so I've installed it both on my MacBook Pro and my Mac Mini. So it's Sophos Antivirus, uh, I think, Home Edition, yep. and it's free. Yep. So the price is right. And from what I could see, the cash looking, price is right. Now the, the, what's the, what's the uh, the um, the efficiency price, right? Because that's well, that's you know, and that's the thing, Dave. Is yeah. I think uh, so. I haven't done much with these folks here, but from what I can see, so I'm looking right now. So I'm looking in Activity Monitor, and I can see. Uh, let's see, four processes here. Sophos UI server, Sophos auto update, Sophos antivirus, and another antivirus. Uh, two of them are under root and two are under my user account. And I'm looking right now, Dave, and the processor utilization of all of them is, uh, I'm sorry, three of them, the processor utilization is zero. Right. One of them, the processor utilization is 0.1%. So I'm so, not as concerned. Whatever, whatever these guys are doing, they're doing it right in that they're not. Because right now I'm actively writing a file. I'm recording. You right. know, I'm recording uh, uh, using Piezo, which uh, uh, seems to also be a, a, a relatively new thing that I installed here because um, I was just having too many issues with uh, the other software I was using. But as far as I can tell, it, it it's not freaking out. Even though I'm writing files and there's lots of files being read and written as, as we're doing this, I don't see it getting in the way. And there, it, to me, is no noticeable slowdown in, in the use of my system. So, okay, so, so far, I'm happy with Sophos. My, my question, and, and it may be that the answer is it's unnoticeable, is CPU usage actually is not the concern. It's I.O., right? How much is it impacting your, your disc IO and, and, um, and it, or, and, or is it, you know, and is it increasing not CPU usage of, of those processes, but CPU usage of say the kernel task or, or increasing weight states in the operating system because something's happening on disc. Uh, and, and that may not be reflected in the CPU usage of any given app. And it's and unfortunately the implementation of top on the, 
um, on the Mac does not report wait states. So there's not an easy out of the box way of, of checking that, but that would, that would sort of be my concern. And, and perhaps with SSDs and drives like that, you know, that becomes even less of an issue, even if they exist. So, um, so maybe it's, maybe it's all right. Yeah. How much Ram is, uh, is that stuff using too? Uh, I'm looking at the four processes here and uh, you know, they're using on the tens of megabytes. Okay. And in the real, in the real mem column is what we're talking about. Yes. Okay. All right. So that's so between the four of them, they're using about a hundred megabytes. So, all right. So certainly not, it's not, not growing into the, you know, half a gigabyte range or anything like that. Right. So I did. So they have both an active mode, which supposedly watches files that you're writing and make sure that they're, they're not, yeah, uh, infected. Yeah, but also I did a full disk scan. Now this was interesting, Dave. I think you, you ran into this as well because you actually found uh, some naughtiness on your on your hard drive. But I actually ran this on both of my machines, and what it found, and this I think is probably an important thing uh, for Mac users to keep in mind, is it did find at least on one of my machines, not one, not two, but three Trojans. Huh. Well, that's the bad news. The, the the somewhat good news, perhaps, is that they were all Windows specific. Ah, uh, okay. That they cool. were buried in, in old emails because I tend to <laughs> store my emails back to forever. And it found them and it said, hey, you want me to clean these up? And I'm like, yeah, well, sure, of course. Yeah, why not? Sure. Um, so it's nice in that it referenced their database and it said these are Windows only. But yeah, you, you may not want to have them uh, because, of course, if I forwarded the email with the infected file, it would, you know, wreak havoc with uh, Windows users that didn't use this product. So cool. All right. Well, maybe I'll so I'm happy with yeah, it. Yeah. Well, we'll try it. But 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 to answer the question here, and I think it, it, it's an interesting question that you and I have to do more research on. Well, no, I, I think doing a full scan of my of my backups uh, certainly if my clone would would clean that out. Yes, uh, but I think the question here, and I think that, that this was the question, is so if you have, so there are two, to me there are two types of backups. There is a full disk clone, as you pointed out, right. but then there's also a time machine backup, which is a bit more complex because it's a... Yeah, but the time machine backup, I don't know if it's storing the file. Well, you'd have to just do a scan of it. But uh, I don't know that it's storing the files that contained the virus to begin with or the Trojan to begin with. Well, no, as far as I can tell. So I read up on this. So we'll link to the, the description here. So F-Secure described uh, what's in the flashback thing. And, okay. and for the most part, from what I could tell, what it does is it modifies entries in what I guess we're going to call your user database or user defaults database, which okay. is, a, I, I think, another nice way of saying your, your P-list files. Okay. And from what I can tell, what this virus did, or, or Trojan, uh, we'll correctly call it a Trojan, is that it modified things in your user defaults database. And actually, the instructions say, all right, well, here's how to get rid of it. So uh, to me, at least with this specific Trojan, the answer is unless you did a full restore of your entire system, you would not restore the right. Trojan. Right. That makes sense. Um, so the clone, definitely it would have been there. Right. But the clone, because this program can detect and remove it. Right. That'd um, be the way to get rid of it. Yeah, but no, it's a, it's a valid concern. And I would say, you know, for the most part, I mean, if you have a time machine backup and you did get a Trojan, the best answer is probably <laughs> to, to start from scratch. Or just do not, uh, so either start from scratch or 
please do not do <laughs> a full restore of your time machine backup because then you will certainly restore the uh, the Trojan. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, you know, we talked about file sharing and permissions and how there were issues if you had multiple people connecting to a, a, a directory or folder shared from an OS 10 client. We got a couple of responses on this. Uh, the first one was from Francois. Well, I don't know if it was the first one. The first one we're going to share with you was from Francois, who had an interesting solution. Of course, the issue being that if multiple user accounts are connecting to uh, shared files and one a file created by one user using default permissions is not writable by other users, even if users are, are explicitly given permission to write in that in that folder. So uh, Francois had an interesting solution. He said. What I do to solve this is I use an ex external hard drive and I select ignore privileges in the drive's preferences. And, and by that, he means you click get info on the driver. You highlight the drive and go to the file and get info menu in the finder and uh, choose ignore privileges. He says, then I created a sharing only user for read only access. I created a sharing only user for read and write access. And I shared a pictures folder, uh, for example, and added both the read only and the read write users that I created and gave them the corresponding access rights. Then on the kids machine, I logged into the shared folder using the read only login and save the credentials in the keychain. They made a shortcut on their desktop so they can read but not delete our pictures. On my machine and on my wife's machine, I use the read and write login the same way, but we both get read and write access. So this is actually a really interesting way of thinking about this. Uh, instead of having permissions per user or, or accounts per user, he created accounts per privilege set. And as long as there's only one account that is writing to that folder, then you'd never have that problem, even if you didn't choose ignore permissions. So, uh, or ignore privileges. So that that's, but that's a, that's uh, again, this, this problem requires a workaround because Apple's solution does not provide uh, a, a smooth way of doing it. So thanks Francois. That's uh that's interesting. I like that. All right. And then, uh, and then we have, we have an answer from Chris, but um, you know, Jimbo's acting up on me. So let me see if I can get this right. Yeah. No, this will be better. All right, Chris, uh, go take it away. Hey guys, it's Christopher with MacWorks in Minneapolis. I was listening to show 389 and your discussion about file sharing with Mac OS 10 client. And I have encountered this with a few of my clients um, that are using, you know, Mac OS X client to share files with a number of people in their small offices. Um, I should first note that probably the easiest way around this problem is to just authenticate with the same username and password from both Macs. That would solve the issue right there with no other trickery. But in the case of, of my clients, a lot of times their servers are exposed to the internet and they've got a few staff and if an employee leaves, we want to be able to, you know, just whack their access without disrupting everyone else. And so what I've done is I created a launch script that essentially every minute or two minutes, it goes through and propagates the permissions on the SharePoint all automatically. And this has worked really, really well. I have it um, in use by, you know, a good half dozen clients or so. So it may not be the most elegant solution, but it definitely does the trick. 
And do note that personal file sharing is personal, and that's the whole reason for Mac OS X server. Thanks a lot. You guys do a great show. Take care. Thanks, Christopher. Yeah, you're right. It, it's personal, but it allows up to 10 users. That's Apple's deal. So you would think that it would allow. I mean, you know, what I'm trying to do at home here, John, is probably pretty common. I have one folder that I want to share and I want my wife to be able to access and my kids to be able to access. And and that's, you know, that's not a big deal. Of course, uh, you know, to Apple's credit, the price of Mac OS 10 server has come down dramatically right it's a i might get this wrong because it's my first day back on the job uh but it's what a 50 dollar increase over uh over client in fact it's not even a separate piece of software you just or it's not a separate install of the operating system you install client and then you just enhance it with with server and it adds you know some of the stuff so so maybe you know i don't know it, it seems strange that they would have this intentionally disabled in in the client version but whatever it is what it is we've been through enough of it don't you think john let's see OS 10 line server 50 bucks that's on top of client though right you have to already own lion client and then add server to it is that right um, i'm looking in the app store and i see a standalone entry here for 50 bucks so uh, but are you ten lion server? Are you on a lion machine or a snow leopard machine? Snow leopard. Okay, so if that all right, so it is just fifty bucks. Okay, well there you go. Mac OS ten lion server. The I server guess. for everyone. <laughs> yeah, well that's kind of what they're trying to say, right? You know, uh, is everyone needs to have it if you want to do any <laughs> anything like this. Maybe that's not what they meant. But, Should uh, we do? Craig? Yeah, we're going to go to Craig, but uh, first I want to talk about okay. our, our first sponsor for yes. uh, this show, which is VMware Fusion 4. So funny time to be talking about, uh, uh, it's, it's serendipitous to, to bring this up now, because VMware Fusion 4 allows you to uh, run multiple operating systems simultaneously on your Mac. Now, its main stated purpose and, and reason for uh, conception in life is to run Windows uh, applications on your Mac. And, and it can do this actually in a, in a very cool way. You can enable it in, in such a way that you don't even see the Windows desktop. You can actually just run Windows apps and have them act almost seamlessly like Mac apps. But under, under the hood, what's happening is Windows is running. And, and of course, you can choose to see the Windows desktop as well. If you like, but you can also run other operating systems, operating systems like Linux, if you want to play with that or you have a need to use that. And with OS 10 Lion, because the license agreement allows it, you can actually run a separate Lion install on your Mac. So very cool for troubleshooting and experimenting with different things is you can set up a, a separate virtual machine just running Lion and you can actually run Lion inside of Lion. Uh, right there uh, using VMware Fusion 4 on your Mac. All works uh, very well. Again, that mission control thing that allows you to kind of seamlessly have Windows and Mac apps up and running at the same time really can make your life easier if you're someone that needs to use a single Windows app or maybe even two Windows apps, but you want the rest of your experience to be in the Mac. That, that mission control allows you 
to really have your Windows apps act almost like their native Mac apps. So go ahead and check it out. Uh, and we've got a, a promo code for you. It's uh, it's normally forty nine ninety nine, but uh, but you can go ahead and you can save ten percent by going to vmware.com slash Mac, and then you're going to use the promo code MGG. So that'll get you another ten percent off. And uh, and you can go check that out again. VMware.com slash Mac. And the promo code is MGG to get you another 10 percent off. So that's VMware Fusion 4 for the Mac. And of course, we'd like to thank them for uh, for continuing to be a Mac Geek Gab sponsor. All right, John. So now it's time to go to Craig. Don't you think? Well, I want to thank VMware. OK, so I love him. But uh, but but now let's go to Craig because Craig led me on a journey uh, of discovery and, and learning. And I, <laughs> that's a good thing. And I got at least two very interesting gadgets or, or tools that we can learn from this. So poor Craig writes us because it was a tale of woe, but a tale of, uh, well, it was a tale of woe for the most part. So Craig writes, hello, John, David, pilot, Pete. This is Craig from Clovis, New Mexico, New Mexico. Okay. Long time listener. First time writer. I've had a repeated issue with my mid-2007 2.4 gigahertz Intel Core Duo iMac. Purchased the machine around Thanksgiving of 2007, ran fairly smooth until about two years ago when the hard drive suddenly failed. Luckily, I was still under Apple Care, and as has been my experience, they replaced the hard drive with no questions asked. Excellent. Two years later, same boat. The hard drive failed with little or no warning. At least that I could tell. That's important to note here, I think. Luckily, after resetting the SFC, I was able to get it back up and running for two days, long enough to run Carbon Copy Cloner. Thanks, John. And accomplish a full-time machine and clone of the computer before it completely failed. Thanks to the instructions that I fix it, was able to get a hard drive replaced for about 100 bucks. It was back up and running less than an hour and a half. My question is simple. Is there something else going on? And, and you and I can toss this around, Dave, because maybe there is. I don't know. Uh, such as logic board uh, that I need to worry about, or is two years about right for a hard drive? I think I'll cut it off there. All right. I don't know if the rest is, 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 is relevant, but how do you know how long a hard drive should last Dave? And this is, uh, uh, this was the core of my reply to him. And, and again, I'm going to toss this around with you because you may have your own thoughts here. Sure. So what I wrote back to Craig was one thing that you could check is the data from the drive manufacturer. Now, now two years to me is just an arbitrary measure of time because there are so many other things that could affect when a hard drive fails. And, you know, obviously a lot of it is, you know, how long is it on? How often do you read or write to it? The temperature, the G-force, I mean, all sorts of things. Now, I'm assuming in an iMac that he's not subjecting it to, to extremes, but who the heck knows? But one thing that I would suggest, so I noted this, and a lot of hard drive manufacturers, though some of them are not very forthcoming with this value, may offer metrics as to how long the drive will last. So, for example, I looked in the drive that I put recently, uh, fairly recently, my MacBook Pro. Uh, it's a Hitachi Travel Star 7K500 drive. And looking in the spec sheet for it, it had an interesting list uh, or, or part of the specifications. So if you dig down, they'll usually provide this. But in the reliability section of the specs, it offered one parameter. Load unload cycle count, 600,000. Okay, well, that's cool. Yeah, what does that give me a number? Yeah. Uh, well, th that's a great question. <laughs> and, you know, and this is where we're going down the rabbit hole, because then I wondered, 
what, what does this mean? What, what is this value? How do I get it? And, and to me, the most important question here is how do you get this value? So I started digging around, doing the Google Foo, and I found out. So one, I learned that one of the utilities that I use uh, almost all the time on both my machines, which is called Smart Reporter, Smart being System Monitoring and Reporting Technology, I believe. And this is a protocol that's built into most hard drives that will, uh, at the highest level, the drive will say, you know, I'm about to fail, dude. And, and if you have a utility like Smart Reporter, it will report that to you. But also what I learned is that part of smart is not just an on off, like I'm good, I'm bad, but there's a whole bunch of data stored in what I'm going to call a smart data block that you can retrieve from the drive. And the cool part is that the latest smart reporter, I think version three now, will give you a way to, if you click on your drive, to report this. Now they're using, as far as I can tell, a open source tool to do this, but it's incorporated in the latest smart reporter and actually lets you graph it and, and look at this and actually sent him a list of all the values here. So, so there are a number of attributes that smart can report. And one of them is called ooh, load cycle count. Hmm. All right. <laughs> so uh, what I'm saying here now, they also offer a whole bunch of other parameters here. Some have to do with temperature, G force, start, stop count, uh, all sorts of things, uh, power on, and I'm not going to go through all of them here. You, you, you want to check out this utility, but my suggestion to him is you may want to, uh, in the future, run something like this. Now, you can either run Smart Reporter or you can, and actually, this is where I went down the rabbit hole a bit here, is I actually ran, uh, it's actually based on um, a Unix utility, and I don't have it in front of me right now. No, wait, hold on. I may have it. Uh, no, I don't. But basically, it's an open source utility that you can get through something like Fink or one of these open source managers that basically will query a drive that is smart compatible and say, hey, tell me all these values. And, and there are so many of them. And the drive stores all of this internally. Again, it's temperature, uh, errors, hard errors, uh, some stuff you may not make sense immediately. But you can look at this data and see if any of them are out of whack. Cool. Now the utility that it, I found does it uh, give you does it does the smart reporter give you any indication as to what a normal parameter would be for that uh, for well, something like load unload well, cycle look, count? Well, looking at this list here, the thing is, it seems the drive itself kind of defines this, isn't uh -huh. it? In that it says, "Here's the value, here's the worst case, and here's a threshold, and here's the type of value where I'm going to maybe report." To you. So from what I can see, smart is not just good, bad. Smart is all of these values. And if any of them exceed a certain threshold that's defined by the drive manufacturer, then it should trigger the smart mechanism in the drive and it will say, up, oh, up, oh, got I'm it. Not. So this is yeah. more the data. While smart reporter can can see this and it, it could be interesting or perhaps even useful. This is actually the data that the drive is using to come up with its yay or nay decision as to whether or not yes. to report that, that, that there's a problem. OK, right. So, uh, yeah. So, so again, the, the manufacturer defines thresholds at which the drive should report a smart error. And at that point, then a tool like Smart Reporter will say the drive says there's a problem and, and you should probably start worrying now. 
here's the only bad news. But then I found some good news, Dave. So the bad news is that smart, at least on the Mac, is although it's a standard way of reporting things, at least on the Mac, out of the box, it's isolated. It's limited to drives that are connected to a SATA port. Right. So if you have a USB drive or a Firewire or an external drive, and you and I have thought this for the longest time, Dave, in that... And and if you look in uh, uh, system info and you look at a drive that's external, what will happen? Or in disutility, it'll say smart status. Well, it, it's not supported. It's like, well, that stinks. Well, here's where I found a little gem here. I found uh, someone in the open source community came out with a little thing called OS 10 SAT smart driver. What does this do, you ask? Well, I'm going to tell you. It basically gives smart reporting ability, at least at a high level, to drives that are connected via USB or FireWire. That's awesome. So that made me happy. So it's a kernel extension, you know, caution. I mean, I installed it. My machine didn't, you know, violently crash. But when I did look in the system info and I looked at a drive connected via FireWire 800, it said smart status. Okay. So. Cool. That's that's I, you know, I don't run any um, external drives on my current main Mac on my iMac anymore, largely because it's got both the SSD and the spindle drive internal to it. So I've got enough storage to manage. And then I've got the Drobo FS, which I still use, even though it's pig slow. I hope they can fix that anyway. Uh, Not dog I, slow. It's it's slower than dog slow. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's handy, man. You think a pig? I don't know a pig or a dog. I mean, which is slower? No, I'm know. using the technical uh, terms. This isn't related to the actual <laughs> animals. These are these are the technical definitions. Um, but anyway, we've got rabbit and turtle, and then dog, and then pig. I think is is how it, uh, how it works. <laughs> this is official, folks. Uh, we certainly jumped the shark, which is a different speed altogether. Um, thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, I don't have any external drives, but I, up until, you know, less than a year ago, I ran a lot of external drives on my, on my main Mac. And this would have been, I don't know that it would have really mattered, frankly, but, but it would have been really handy to have because I'm a geek and it, it always drove me crazy that I couldn't like get at that information. So that's great. I'm glad you found that. That's awesome. And if anything, what smart reporter does that I think is the most valuable is that it has an email alerting mechanism where if it detects the drive is complaining through the smart mechanism, it'll send you an email saying, which I think is probably the best way to let someone know. I don't think it does SMS or maybe it does. I, I haven't found that yet, but okay. it'll definitely, and, and it actually, growl? oh, it absolutely does growl. Yes. Okay. All right. So it has growl support, but also, so two other checks they added in the latest version, Dave, and then we'll move on. So it has a raid check, which um, unless you're running a traditional raid, but then here's the final check that it does in the new version here. So, so the old one was two seven. I think the new one is three Oh. And you know, I, I was willing to throw that, throw down the five bucks. It, I think it was right. four ninety nine. Yeah. Of course. To me, it was totally worth it. But the last check they have, which I think is important based on what we've discussed in the past is it has a disc space check. And that as you start running out of space, like if you get below a certain threshold of free space, it'll also alert you, which to me if nothing else alerts you that your drive is getting way fragmented, dude, that's something I, yeah, right. Well, so drive pulse from, uh, from, oh, right, right. from drive that's included with, uh, with, yeah, with ProSoft's drive genius, uh, will do some of that. 
Um, but it won't tell me. Well, I don't know. I, I don't let my drive get that full. Uh, but but maybe it'll tell you your drive's getting full. That would be a nice thing. Uh, I've always wished that um, iStat menus would do that, but you know it doesn't. All right. Uh, let's move on to Andy. Right. We're good with this one, John. We're great. Okay. Uh, Andy writes, I just listened to show 391 and Dave, you mentioned how much, uh, you know, of Unix and especially how mail works in lion. Okay. Uh, let's see. Well, I've had a problem for some time with mail formatting in lion that was only partially there in leopard. Number one, uh, how the problem of how my emails look when received by others, specifically windows users in the corporate world. I find that I format an email nice and looks good when I send it. But when it comes back embedded in the person's reply, it has different font attributes. I check with colleagues and they all complain of the same when receiving emails from me. This also happened in previous versions of OS 10. All right. So let's talk about that. And then we'll go on to problem number two. Uh, This is. This is a common problem, not just with Mac users, but with everybody. You know, we've talked about how email was originally and really still is a seven bit protocol, meaning it is not meant to transport anything more than text. Obviously, we uh, we send a lot more than text or we send rich text, uh, but attachments are not sent in their binary form over email. They're actually encoded down to seven bit sent across and then your email client uh, goes ahead and, and reconstructs it into eight bit format. But but the issue here is that there really is no standard for rich text formatted email. I mean, there's HTML, uh, but if you're if you're doing sort of what what most email clients do, which is like quasi HTML, uh, where you're doing relative font sizes and this, that and the other, it can get really funky because what looks good to you on your screen does not necessarily mean it's going to look good to me on my screen, although it might because we both have Macs. And so we're both kind of coming from the same baseline. But when you send it to somebody running Outlook on a Windows machine, totally different baseline. And and it, and it might look really bad. Your fonts might seem like childishly large or infinitesimally small. So this is the reason that I really encourage everyone to either send completely full HTML emails where you've built the entire page, which is what you're going to do with like mailing lists and stuff, or send plain text only emails. Because if you send a plain text email and it has no formatting instructions whatsoever in it, then the other person's email client is going to show it in whatever they've chosen as their default font. And it's going to look to them like something they wrote. Uh, and the same is true on the other side. You know, if, if somebody sends you a plain text email, it's going to come up in whatever your main font is for email. And that's a good thing. Now, where it gets frustrating is you might want to bold one word in your email or underline one word. Doing that changes the entire message into rich text email and blows away a lot of that kind of natural default formatting that the other person might see. So really, the the, the solution here is to stop and rethink the way you uh, compose email, knowing that there's this limitation. And, and with that, you know, most of the time, my advice is send plain text email. In fact, on all of my Macs, I go into mail preferences composing, and I set message format to be plain text, uh, which is the first little option up there, either in Snow Leopard or Lion or and even previous versions of mail. And, and that's, that's really going to help you. Uh, I, I think that that's going to make a big difference for exactly what you're talking about here with windows, people seeing 
you know, strangely formatted messages from you. It's a little frustrating because, you know, you got all these, you know, we're all used to composing in word processors and doing colors and this, that, and the other thing, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not what email was built to do. And until we get some way of saying, okay, here's the baseline that everybody's going to work from, we're always going to have these problems. So, And I want to build on what you said, Dave, because I'm looking in the same spot that I think you're talking about. So in Apple Mail, in composing, yep. as Dave mentioned, message format plain text is, is one choice you can make or rich text. But the other section that is really, and I think what you're saying is that part of it is up to the responder in how their email is set up, but at least in Apple Mail, and maybe be a good network citizen or email citizen. So in the composing section, in the responding section of this in Apple Mail, is a little checkbox, which I just looked and I did not have checked, and now I just checked it to save all my respondents' uh, uh, grief. Use the same message format as the original message. Well, no. For some strange reason, well, here's the point I'm trying to make here is that it seems that most email programs let the responder control the format of how they respond. And, And just looking that this value is available in Apple Mail leads me to believe that the the recipient can ignore that you sent something in plain text and can decide to respond with pretty colors and fonts and, and all sorts of garbage, which then leads you down the path of, of frustration. That That's true. You see, where I'm, I, see what I'm saying? I do. Is it, wouldn't it be nice if you, so if I were, if I write you an email in plain, boring text, shouldn't you respond in plain, boring text or at least be it, encouraged to do so. And that's what at least mail app with this checkbox does. I think that's what I'm saying. I, I agree with you, but I also think if you send me an email with crazy HTML formatting, I should also be encouraged <laughs> to respond in plain, boring text. No, no, no. Yes. Which, which is why that checkbox is dangerous because if you send me an email in, in HTML format and I reply, right now I'm not using my default in the reply, but here's the thing. I I'm going to uncheck it now. Well, actually, now that you mentioned that, I'm going to uncheck it. Well, well, forget it. I'm going to I'm going to be plain to everybody. Here's the I thing, though. It, if Go. you uncheck, I leave that box checked on mine, despite my 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 previous statement. All right, I'm going to check it now. OK. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I do that is if I get some message that's all formatted or whatever, and I now this 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 responding is also for forwarding. So if I want to forward, if I get some formatted message like a mailing list or something that's totally HTML and I don't have that box checked when I forward it, all the formatting is blown away. So if I'm trying to forward something to you, it turns it into plain text immediately and it may be completely gibberish, you know, at that point. So by leaving that checked, I can actually forward an HTML email to someone without I can't. So I leave it checked, but then uh, I've gotten very, very used to the command shift T uh, when when composing, which is uh, also the same as going to the format menu in mail and choosing uh, uh, the toggle of either make plain text or make rich text. And uh, so if I reply to a message and someone has rich text in it, I just toggle that off and I I change it to plain text and off I go because I just like to keep things plain because I want them to see my message in their preferred format. And if they send me an HTML email, they won't get it in their preferred format. They'll get it in my preferred format, which is not good. So, all right. So that that's number one for Andy. Number two, he says, copy and paste in mail for Lion behaves, behaves strangely. 
If I copy a mail segment and try to paste into a cursor defined spot, pressing command V results in the paste being placed in a different random spot, usually in front of or on top of the plates I wish to paste to, sometimes two or three lines above. I did some digging around on Apple's forums and found below a massive uh, thread of similar complaints going back now almost two years with no apparent solution to either of these issues. I've managed a small workaround recently for the cut and paste issue by deleting all my old signatures that came over from Leopard and recreating just the ones I really need fresh and lion. I like others use formatted signatures to end, especially my business emails. Okay. Well that, so, so your issue, if you have, when you're pasting into an HTML or a rich text email, yeah, sometimes things are going to get placed in wacky spots because you're in the midst of div tags and HTML and it, it can it can be very, very strange. You know, you're using the same rendering engine uh, in mail that you use in Safari. And if you don't uh, know what's behind the scenes and you may not because you didn't write the initial email or the code to begin with, it can get very, very funny. I highly advise against using formatted signatures in any email, especially business email. Um, but for all the same reasons we just talked about. So uh, I, I may be, may, perhaps I am, uh, I'm holding on to, to, uh, to something that, that the rest of the world has given up on, but I don't like my email to look like crap when somebody gets it. And, and if you're doing formatted signatures, that's going to force your entire message into rich text every time, even if you don't intend to. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's the way it goes. Well, you could, you could append a graphic. Which will always look the same. You could append a graphic, but then it comes if you then can that, do that forces you to do HTML and then yeah. Mm-hmm. I find Not it frustrating actually when so well, well I find it frustrating actually when someone embeds a graphic in their signature in that I can't copy and paste the info and then then the data detectors right. don't work and stuff like that. So uh, although it gets thumbs up for consistency and that will, it should always look the same, it it takes away several thousand points in usability. And that again, I can't use, I love data detectors in Apple mail when I can highlight things in an email signature and put it in my address book. If it's not there already, right. that, that, that to me is one of the big pluses about Apple and I'm sure some other email systems too. Yep. Yep. I agree. Uh, now you, and it, it is important to note that you can have an attachment to an email and still have that email be plain text. It's when you start mm-hmm. doing formatting in the text or placing attachments at certain points in the text, as opposed to just attaching it to where that switches it to, uh, to rich text. So, all right. Uh, let's see. We certainly aren't going to have time to get through this entire exhaustive agenda. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk to, let's talk to Doug here and, uh, and see what, see where we go with that. Doug writes, uh, I want to move my iPhone 4S to sync and back up to another computer in our household. The details are that my iPhone is set up to sync and back up with my old 12-inch PowerBook G4. I feel that this laptop is getting a little long in the tooth uh, to keep in service. Our other computer is an early 2008 24-inch iMac. I want to move my sync backup of my iPhone to the iMac. Both computers are as current as possible with iTunes and OS X. Both iTunes libraries are under the same Apple ID. Is it as simple as plugging in the phone to the iMac and saying backup and sync? Okay, Doug. So it is if you're willing to have your iMac wipe out and start your iPhone 4S from scratch. When you move an iOS device or an iPod, 
uh, from one Mac to another, that's what's going to happen. It's going to say, hey, I'm already synced with another iTunes library. And this is important. Uh, I'm, I'm already synced with another iTunes library. Do you want to wipe me out and sync with this iTunes library? And of course, I don't think you want to do that. The only way to uh, maintain your configuration and your setup and, and essentially not have to wipe out your iPhone is to move the iTunes library from your PowerBook to your iMac first. That means wiping out the iTunes library on the Power Mac, though. Uh, sorry, I said Power Mac on the iMac. Uh, but as long as you're willing to do that, then you're good to go. Uh, because it'll see, ah, I'm synced with this iTunes library, even though it was on another computer, but that's okay. It's the same iTunes library and I can go ahead and do it. So that that's, you have to, the sync is between the iTunes library and the iPhone. If you move the iTunes library, then the sync will maintain. If you do not move the iTunes library, then the sync has to start from scratch. Does that help? I hope it helps. Might not be what you wanted to hear, but it's the way it is. Any thoughts on that, John? Okay. So you can't, uh, so I, I think the question was, can I somehow transfer my backup data from one computer to the other? And it will realize that the device it, is not new. Yeah. It and doesn't that, have that, anything. That was the question. It doesn't have anything to do with the backup data. Sync, okay. You can move your backup data around, but really it's, that's not that big of a deal. You just run a new backup on the, on the iMac. The bigger deal is, is the iTunes library itself uh, for the mm -hmm. syncing. Yeah. Now, what if I move the backup and the iTunes library? Well, that's maybe, fine. Maybe that's maybe that's the question. Well, as long as you move, as long as you move the iTunes library, it's fine. You can it, it, all you're doing it by moving the backup is saving yourself the time of rebacking mm. up the iPhone to the new computer. But I wouldn't move the backup. I would actually let it rebuild the backup. It's it's mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. safer process. Okay. Yeah. All right. While we're on the uh, the the iOS stuff. I think, and this is where we're going to go to uh, stump the geek here. I, th I think Marco, I think we have a good, good question from Marco. I don't know. Uh, Marco says, I need your help to handle a problem that I have in iTunes and I can't find a solution anywhere. From time to time, there is no pre-announcement that it will recur. When I connect my iPhone to sync with iTunes, all the apps that I have in my library are sent to the iPhone, even though I only have a few apps installed on it. I recently upgraded my 3GS to a 4S, and it happened with both models. My iTunes is 10.61, but it happened with previous versions, too. I'm using OS 10.10.7.3. The only thing I can remember is that my iTunes folder and my music folder is as old as Mac OS 10.10.0. Yes, I used it since the beginning. Just moving, kept moving my iTunes folder from OS 10 versions until now. I always did full installations and never upgraded one version to another. Maybe my iTunes folder got mixed up in the process. After a while, iTunes finishes the sync process and my iPhone ends up full of apps. So I open up the app manager window in iTunes and have to click one by one the apps I want to eliminate from the phone. But some apps don't show up, uh, don't show the X mark and I can't eliminate them. So I proceed and I eliminate the ones that I can. Uh, if I, uh, okay, that, so th there you go. Um, yeah, this is a weird thing with with uh with itunes occasion i've seen this on my end too occasionally it just wants to blast all the apps over to the phone uh i i think it's um i i'm trying to think uh well the way i've solved this uh is 
is by assuming I, I operate under the assumption that the computer has now a corrupted uh, idea as to what apps should be installed on the iPhone. Right. I mean, that that's what's happening here is it's for whatever reason, it's deciding it's got to blast all this stuff over there. Uh, the only real way to start to, 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 to fix this is to wipe the iPhone out because that wipes out what the computer thinks should be installed on there. However, uh, I've also found that when I'm going through and doing this, sometimes I'll go through and uncheck everything and then I hit apply and it goes and puts all the stuff back out there anyway. So I found that if I go through and I do maybe, you know, a page worth of apps, I uncheck them and then I hit apply, then that syncs and it kind of, and I sync it a couple of times and then I remove more apps and I sync it a couple of times and doing that has actually kept it from reverting back to this. Let's, you know, barf all the apps all over my iPhone again. So something in that process sort of reset whatever database the iTunes uses to store what app should be out there. And perhaps that process will help you too. So instead of taking all of them off, try taking, you know, pages of them off and then sync it a couple times and then another page and sync it a couple of times. And it's not a technical solution, but it, uh, it has worked for me. So I assume you've not seen this, John, right? You haven't, you haven't been through multiple iPhones. So the only thing I'll see is sometimes, yeah, I mean, I'll see it. No, I guess I haven't. Okay. And I'm wondering what would have, well, no, and then I have one iPhone and one, you know, iTunes implementation and it syncs. Right. And sometimes I'll see it wirelessly or otherwise uh, syncing apps. Uh, I assume because they've been updated or added and it all seems to get along pretty well, but I could, uh, but I could see in this case how, yeah, they, they get out of whack. I don't know. Yeah. Are, are you suggesting that a restore would be necessary? No. Or wiping the device? What? Well, I or mean, re resetting the device. Cause one, yeah. one thing, I mean, there, there are two things you could do. One, I think restore makes it so that iTunes takes its version of reality and pushes it back to the device. Right. 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 And then the other is if you reset your device, which is buried in one of the menus somewhere, then the next time, well, no, the kind of the same thing would happen. Right. No, you don't want to restore from the backup. Right. That's where the problem is, is that. iTunes OK, so, so you're, you're you're thinking the backup is corrupted. Okay. Well, yeah. iTunes idea of what should be on this device is corrupted. And so the only way to reset that a hunt with 100 percent guarantee is to is to wipe that out. That's right. Yeah. Which is frustrating. I mean, it. But, but again, I've seen this. In fact, I saw it with my daughter's iPad the other day. Uh, we were going through and it was like suddenly it started barfing everything out there. It's like, no, no, stop. So frustrating, but you know, it's how it goes. You could also, you know, um, because apps can be installed. I, you do not need iTunes to install apps, right? So you could <laughs> uncheck that box that says manage the apps on this device. Right. And, and just manage them manually from the, from the app store. So that, that would be another way to, if it, if it's truly giving you fits and you don't want to start from scratch, just uncheck, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You go into iTunes and uh, I can pull it up, but, uh, but, but there's, you know, you go into, once you've got your device selected, you go across and you go to apps and just uncheck that box. Now, of course it, by doing that, it might offer to wipe all the apps off your phone completely, but you know, maybe that's, maybe that's good. I don't know iTunes needs a total rewrite. I mean, it's got to be coming this year, right? Don't you think? Yes, I think it's it's a it's, it's a, a horror show. Yeah, well, it's a it, it's kind of 
I mean, it's a glorified web browser because most of the things that you see in the right. iTunes store, I mean, no, seriously, no, it's, it, it's rendering, it's rendering a web page. And then there's this uh, kind of database functionality where it's syncing apps and your data with the other apps on the, you know, whether it be the address book or things like that. So it's a, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a mess. All right. What else? Uh, where are we time-wise here? Oh, All right. We are quite oh, we are at So you want to you want to do you want to do one of your uh your aperture questions here? You want to do Eugene or Fred, John? Pick one and go. Uh, hold on. Man, what a huge list there. Yeah, I wonder who put this together. <laughs> yeah, it was me. <laughs> um not Eugene. What was the other one here? What was the other Aperture one? Fred. Remind me. About about backups. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Let me bring it up here. Bamp. Do something. Do, do a tap to answer it, I'll, something. I'll, I'll read Fred's question, and then you can, you can answer it. Uh, Fred says, uh, you know what? I'll, uh, yeah, Fred says, I really enjoyed seeing the two of you at Macworld. Uh, always great to put faces to names. Yeah, I, I, yeah we, we love that. That's one of the best parts about going to Macworld. Uh, Fred says, my question is this. I had to back up my entire Aperture library, housing close to half a million photos on a dedicated three terabyte drive. As I noticed, things are moving a little too slow on the hard drive. I used Drive Genius to defrag the hard drive. I had Drive Genius make a mirror backup as a safety net and then went about defragging the drive. Everything seemed to run smoothly. When I opened Aperture, I found all my projects listed in the library column, but all of the associated photos were missing. All that appeared in each photo icon was a triangle with an exclamation point inside. I suspect Aperture can't find the original files, but none of them were ever removed from the hard drive that houses the Aperture app. What happened to them and how do I get the pictures back? Mr. Braun. Here we go. I am now on the same page as you are. Or we all are. Or, well, not not those that are listening. Go! <laughs> all right. So we have one high-level place to go here, and that is... Apple has a wonderful support article, Aperture 3 Troubleshooting Basics. And it goes through a whole bunch of things about troubleshooting, not necessarily with corrupted libraries. And we will link to this, of course. And I will, well, Dave already has the link. I think Dave is going to do the show notes, which should be a joy. But where I think you want to go here, looking at your screen, I'm going to offer a couple of options here. So one is, at least with Apple's iPhoto application or, or photography applications, which includes Aperture and iPhoto. And I'm not sure about maybe others, but, but at least these two, if you start them up and you hold down both the option and the command key, both iPhoto and Aperture will offer you options for repairing things that are broken, assuming that things are broken. And at least with Aperture, and this was my suggestion and we haven't heard back yet. So hope, hope we'll, we'll see what happens. With Aperture, you hold an option and command, and you will get a thing called Aperture Library First Aid. And it offers what I would say is an increasing severity options to repair your Aperture Library. The first is repair permissions, which to me, that's pretty simple. And you could probably just repair permissions normally through disutility. The second one is repair the database. Check for inconsistencies in your library and repair them. The third is rebuild the database. And I think in this case, looking at what happened uh, in his case, I think that would be that would be the one that would fix problems. Now, assuming this does not fix the problem here. Now, the, the fortunate thing in 
you know, I'm glad that he, you know, he thought about doing a backup is that you do have a backup of your Aperture library. Now, the thing is, the Aperture library is not just a big monolithic blob of data, and that it's actually a package. And as with any package on Mac OS X, what you do is if you control click on it, you will see a choice called show package contents. And what happens is, at least with the Aperture library, if you open up the Aperture library file and say show package contents, you will see a number of folders. And there's one that I think is the most important here, and it's called masters. Those are your master photos. And if you're going to be able to recover your photos from anywhere, it's going to be within this folder. And I believe it's sorted by year and then I think month and date and all that. And you may not get the names of the photos. You may lose that. That's stored in another part of the package. But at least if you go into this part of the package file, you will find your raw photos. So that's cool. what I got. Cool. All right. Uh, let's do uh, let's do a couple of cool things found here, John. Uh, and I have th- these I haven't even looked at for a second. So surprise! That's right. <laughs> so uh, I was looking for Chris here, but I don't even I don't even see that one. So uh, now, Chris, yeah, display. Uh... No. I don't see it. It's oh, called Appless no. Scrolling. So it's not in there. So Oops. we're going to go to uh, to Michael. Michael uh, writes for Cool Stuff Found. He says, I recently upgraded to an iPhone 4S. And he says, I, I used Gazelle and uh, gave my iPhone uh, 4 a good home. Anyways, one of the areas Siri disappointed me was its inability to control apps and settings. However, I recently stumbled across the following URL, which is for a shortcut app. I also find that I can create a contact on the phone and set the URL field according to the website. Then I can ask Siri to call up the contact and click on the URL and voila, I'm at the setting field I desired. For what it works, all my normal contacts are iCloud sync, so on the iPhone contact list was empty. This is where I have been making my shortcut contacts. Okay, so what he's talking about is that all the settings that you have on the iPhone can be accessed as URLs. And this is actually built so that apps can send you to another place in another app. Apple has their sandbox and they don't let, they don't really let apps talk to each other except by way of URLs. So for example, if you want to go to uh, your notes app, you actually go to a URL that says prefs colon root equals notes and uh, and Michael found this great website. This is really cool stuff, John. I, I see why you put it in cool stuff found uh, that will bring you there. If you want to go to your Wi-Fi prefs, you can do that, too. So he's got contacts with these as their URLs so that he can pull up the contact with Siri and immediately get to uh, to this. So this is uh, this is definitely going to go in the in the cool stuff found list. I like and this, next, I f- I've, And I found the one that, that I mislabeled. It was under Paul. Oh, yes. We like, we like Paul. That's good. All right. Well, so, I think uh, we like... Well, we like... Well, I, I think we... Do, do we? Oh, yeah. We, we like everybody. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Same category, but it's under, under Paul. Yeah, I so this is actually cool, because you can use these URLs without... Um, 
without jailbreaking. So you can get to, you can get shortcuts to your different places in your settings and all that without having to jailbreak, which is that, that that's that, there, there, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of cool stuff there. All right, good. All right. Now, uh, off to Paul. Oh, I see it. Yes. Ah, okay. And in Oops. fact, it was Paul. It was just listed as Chris in the agenda. All right. Paul writes, mm-hmm. I've, I've been using command tab to switch between applications on my MacBook pro for a long time. Then I use the, uh, minus or tab to move forward or backward through the list to get to the app I want. Uh, but that list can get pretty long. Agreed. Yesterday, I accidentally discovered that once you have pulled up the row of app icons, you can scroll left or right through the list by keeping the command key held down and using two fingers to scroll left or right. Fewer keystrokes equals keyboard happiness. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah. Once you've got that up, keeping the command key down and then just use the arrow keys to go back and forth. That's pretty cool. I like this, John. This is this is exciting for me. I like having you prep the show because the cool stuff found is actually it's new to me when we do the show. I like that. And even more interesting. Now, here's another weird thing I'm finding out here. Okay, so I just brought this up. So I am doing what he said, right and left arrow. If I do an up arrow. Yeah. That seems to bring up a document. It, it brings Uh-oh. up the, the, the one window and hides everything else. Oh, man. Is that bad? And the down arrow brings up all the windows for an app, right? Or is that... Is it one and the same? Yeah, up and up went up arrow and down arrow. And then you can scroll through the windows with the left and right arrows and pick the one you want. I'm trying to figure out what to do here because I just activated front row on my mini. Oh boy. <laughs> That's bad. Out, how can I get out of it? That's uh huh. I'm if you know how to front you, row. Yeah, boy. Uh how do you exit front row? I think you gotta escape won't do it, right? Wow, how did I get in the front row? Goodness. Oh, wait, no. Give me an option. Ah, there we go. Ah, okay. Here's a tip, folks. Okay, on a uh, Snow Leopard machine. I forgot. I think it's a command option escape. Yeah, that, that brings I, up the I, force quit thing? No, no. It got me out of front row. But okay. hold on while we're doing this here because it seemed to get me into it. So command option escape. All right. All I know is that got me out of front row. So somehow I, I did a, a finger fumble and I got myself in a front row by doing this uh, tip uh, here. Interesting. Well, no, I was fiddling with the up and down arrows. I think I, I, I maybe huh. I got on the finder and I hit the wrong arrow key, but all of a sudden okay. I was in front row and then it gave me an audio alert saying something was up at the firewall. Oh my gosh. Bad news, man. Well, that's crazy. Can be. <laughs> all right. So command option escape gets you out of front row immediately. That's good to know. It would appear to be. Yeah, it was a contender, you know. All right. Uh, Robin. It was kind of like Apple TV Jr., right? Yeah, it was kind of like that. That's right. Mm. All right. So we'll do one more cool stuff found, and then I want to tell you about something, John, because I I, I had something interesting happen. It's not really Mac related, but it's it's fun. I want to tell you about it. Robin writes, uh, I thought I would bring your attention to a wonderful gadget I have just found. It's not software. It's not even designed for the Mac. But if you are a frequent traveler, it is a wonderful find. It's uh, a router called the Asus WL330N. It's a wireless router about the size of a credit card, although a little thicker. It has a number of functions, including being able to plug an Ethernet cable into it and then to provide wireless network for hotels that don't have wireless. But its real killer function is that you can set it up to join a wireless network and then share that wireless network through the device. 
If like me, you sometimes end up in hotels or airports where you have wireless, but have to pay per device. This is a brilliant solution. You fire up the device power. Uh, it powers from USB. If you like, you get it to join for the paid for Wi-Fi service. And then it shares this Wi-Fi service to any and all devices you connect to it. It's brilliant and will save me lots of money. I can share with my colleagues as well as my multiple Apple devices. I never thought I would say this, but way to go Asus. So <sighs> this is actually... This is great. Uh, I don't see a price on here, um, but uh, but but I'm sure we can find one. Uh, but the um, most routers are capable of doing this, uh, although uh, they're well hardware capable of doing it. But but a lot of times the software doesn't let you. You know, I I use my favorite DDWRT firmware that would let me do things like this. But the Asus stuff uh, out of the box lets you do it in a credit card size router. And uh, and it's 70 bucks at Amazon. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. I like that. 70 bucks for a nice little travel router. That's good stuff, John. Or less. I found it for less. How much less? Uh, Newegg's got it for about 40. Really? So uh, well, that's be a bit of flexibility. But yeah, no, it's very small. Yeah, it looks about a, you know, like a pack of cigarettes. No, yeah, a pack of cigarettes. A few credit cards stacked yeah. on top of one another. Yeah, this is it's not tiny. We want our not that we want our listeners to start smoking too. No, that's right. That's right. Heaven forbid we're the ones that uh, that can lead you to lead start you down smoking. the dark path. It says it has. It says it also has. Oh no! Wait, I found a different one. I found one called the N3G, which offers 3G sharing. That's why I uh, I got confused on the pricing. All right, now I understand. Yes, this is just the N. Okay, cool. the run-of-the-mill one looks yeah, to be about $40-something. Yeah. 40 yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. And it does 802.11n as well as uh, B and G, so it'll get you your uh, fastest speeds that are reasonably expected in today's market, especially at 40 bucks for a router. So, um, so John, while, uh, yes, since Dave. the last time we talked, I have... Yes. Um, used not one but two new modes of transportation or new devices uh new new ways of getting around uh and, and yes. i won't go too deep into this but uh the saturday before we left i took mm-hmm. a discovery flight oh yes in a in a robinson r22 i know one of these <laughs> yeah in a robinson <laughs> oh, r22 beta 2 helicopter and uh, helicopter helicopter with yeah yeah. And I'd never been in a helicopter before in my life, uh, but we did a little bit of ground school, uh, which is actually mandated by the FAA because the R-22 has low inertia rotors. Uh, so emergencies need to be handled before you lose inertia in your rotors. And so that means, you know, a matter of seconds. But uh, but then once we went up, you know, we got up to uh, he, he, you know, the, the my instructor uh, obviously took care of, of taxiing and taking off. and then. Uh, and then once we were up at about uh, 1800 feet or so and um, and moving along at about 70 knots, he he gave me the controls. He gave me them initially one by one uh, so I could get a feel for each one. And then he gave me the whole craft. And, you know, I've flown small planes, not a lot, but but somewhat. And I've always felt like you have to have a very light touch on uh, on small planes. But man, helicopter, it's a whole different world. I mean, you basically think about turning and the thing moves. It's really, really sensitive and you're constantly adjusting the thing. But, um, but it was really cool uh, being able to, to um, 
see that much. You know, in a small plane, you so much of your field of vision is is obstructed by the dashboard. And in a helicopter, uh, certainly this one, that wasn't true at all. I mean, basically, from the tips of your feet to the back of your head is just glass. So it was it was a little, you know, there, there's some of that fear that comes in. And I get this in a small plane, too, but I'm, I'm more used to it, obviously. They, they bounce around a lot and you have to get used to how much of that bouncing is acceptable. And you just you're not, you know, not supposed to freak out about it and certainly not supposed to react to it, at least in terms of input to the controls. And so it took me a little while to, you know, and, and I'm sure I, I would need more of that, obviously, to sort of get acclimated to what it's like in a helicopter. But um, but it was very, very cool. So that was uh, that was sort of a that was a, an interesting thing to do. I highly recommend it for anyone. Go, go, go fly a helicopter once. It's uh, it's fun. Oh, and fly a small plane. Have you ever done that, John? Have you ever gone up in, in a in a small plane? I haven't flown one. I've been up in a uh, Piper. OK, you know, you and I should get get together sometime. We can where we can, we can find an airport somewhere between us and uh and go, you know, each each fly, maybe like a, a Cessna 172 with an instructor. It's a ton of fun. Yeah, I think it was a Piper Cub, but it was, okay. um, it was a friend of mine who, and it was basically, I think, a four seater. Oh, wow. And we actually, big, it was, a, it was a, um, okay. Wasn't it, you a sure it wasn't one. a Cessna? Could have been a Cessna. I thought it was a, uh, it might have been. Yeah, it's possible. I'm not sure, but, but we, but we took off from a Sikorsky airport here. Yeah. Um, and it was actually a, a lunch. Uh, so it was a going away lunch. Uh, the Sikorsky airport was, uh, is near the place I used to work. Yeah. And uh, we went to Block Island for lunch. Oh, that's cool. That was kind of fun. That's cool. <laughs> oh, gee, let's let's hop in an airplane and go to Block Island for lunch. <laughs> we're cool. able to expense that one, though. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, but no, the thing that was most terrifying was, I mean, if you didn't have, uh, so everybody was wearing headsets. Sure. To communicate. The thing was, the only thing between me and uh, and the rest of us and and the big scary world was this, you know, very somewhat thick sheet i think but of uh either glass or plexiglass or, or whatever yeah but that was it i mean wow. it was it was loud i mean without yeah. the headphones i mean you you wouldn't be so so the thing that got me is yeah i mean there was just this thing above my head and that was my only barrier between the big wide world yeah so it was kind well, of frightening and it was incredibly loud so in in a that's true in in pretty much any small plane that's true in a helicopter especially the R22 take that and like triple it on both counts. So the, the engine is literally right behind your head. So it's even louder, uh, but wearing headsets, it's fine. And then of course, you know, instead of the, the smaller piece of glass, it's just this huge bubble of glass between you and the outside world. And so that, yeah, but you, you know, you, yeah, well, I, I was going to say you get used to it. You either get used to it or you don't. Now, I find it fun, but, but I can certainly see where people, especially, you know, I mean, even when you're taken off in a small plane, you know, you drop, you know, you got four foot drops here and there and you're just sort of bouncing around and you kind of have to get used to that. So so that was one mode of transportation that I added to my mm -hmm. list of things. And then on Tuesday down in Austin with the family, we rented uh, uh, segways and took a segway tour of downtown Austin for about four, uh, three hours or so. And it was just us and uh, tour guides. So you know, we basically kind of toured around and went where we want. And uh and that was really cool. You know, that the technology inside a Segway is uh, is fascinating. It's amazing what the thing can do. It really it, it balances you. I think it's like recalculating your balance 100 times a second or something. And it's got two independent motors uh, 
that, that sort of react and, and keep you up. And then it, depending on where you're shifting your body weight and, and manipulating the controls, you're, you know, moving on this thing. But, but that was, that was awesome. I, I actually, it yeah. Would, yeah. Have you ever ridden a Segway? Segway? Uh, I saw Steve Wozniak maybe yeah. three years ago. He was, he was putting around on his in front of the Moscone. Segway. Yeah. 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 Like He's a, got his, he brings his everywhere. The guy's a Segway maniac. Yeah. 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 Ah, that's another thing I, I highly recommend. It's fun stuff. So anyway, that's uh, those are the two things I added to my uh, my modes of transportation piloted uh, list. So okay, yeah, it's fun stuff. All right, now moving from modes of transportation to methods of contact, feedback at mattkeekab.com is the way you can reach us via email. Mm-hmm. Via email. Yeah. You know, if, well, no, I, I would use feedback at MacGeekab.com, Dave. No, no, no. Via I don't email, know what you're talking about. Via email, you want to use feedback at MacGeekab.com. No. Well, via, via telephone, yeah. you want to use 206-666-GEEK. And if your phone doesn't have letters on it, GEEK is? 4335. That's right. 433-5. Ooh. Right? Same thing, I think. Okay. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, Skype to Mac Geek Gab will get to us as an audio comment voicemail, and uh, and we've confirmed again that that works. Just in case, uh, uh, I don't know why occasionally it doesn't, but uh, but every now and then we go through and make sure it works, and we've done that. Uh, the show notes, which were actually lovingly handcrafted while this show was being made, uh, yeah, will be right. will be posted to macgeekgab.com in sync with the show going live just in a couple really? of minutes here. Yeah, man. Eesh, wow. You're good, man. <laughs> yep. Uh, I hope I didn't miss anything. So uh, so we'll have to well, see you, if, you, if my... You, you, you got to let them percolate a bit, I think. I, I will. Kind I'll of go back age. And, I'll go back and listen, but the stuff will be there. We've, I've, got a, I've got a list built yeah. up. That's why you got to let them mature. <laughs> age. Yeah. Uh, let's see. You can send us iTunes comments. Uh, we can't reply to them. We can read them. Uh, but, uh, but that's about that. But it does help, actually. Your, your iTunes votes and, and comments do help keep the show at the mm. top of the list there. Of course, the top of the list means we can attract more listeners. Attracting more listeners means that uh, we can keep the show at the same level or, of course, grow it. And that is a good thing for all of us. So please, if you haven't, go and vote for us and, and, uh, and post an iTunes comment. We would, we would very much appreciate that. And if you're in the giving mood after you've gone and posted your iTunes comment and you feel like, wow, is there more that I can do? Is there more Mac Geek Gab for me? The answer is yes. You can subscribe to Mac Geek Gab Premium. Just 25 bucks for six months gets you access to all the premium benefits, which include the two extra episodes per month that we do. And you get access to the back catalog, too. So uh, so there's that. Uh, then you get access to the entire back catalog of all the archives of all the shows, premium and both. And, uh, of course, last but, but certainly not least, that, that warm, fuzzy feeling that you do get from, uh, from giving a little something back to, uh, to John and I for what we do here. We certainly appreciate that. You can find us on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, yes. Right? And if you wanted to find us on Twitter, you could look at MacGeekAb, which is where you learn about when the show is posted or when the show notes are done or various other sundry and, and uh, 
Maybe stuff. not so interesting things about the show. But every now and then. So, Twitter, Matt Geekab. I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. The other guy who is piloting somewhere is Pilot Pete. And, of course, Mac Observer for all your Mac news needs on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. And uh, I think that's I think that's that's it as far as contact stuff, right, John? Well, I think we have Facebook.com uh, Mac Observer, right? Well, we do, yeah. I don't, for, know, for I don't know why we don't mention that, but hey. Yeah, that's true. What we the should. heck? We can. Might as well, might as well uh, check both. We're allowed. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, let's see. All right. Well, I guess that's that. We would like to thank Michael Johnston for converting this show into AAC for us and for you. Uh, he hosts the We Have Communicators podcast. So go ahead and check that out. Of course, Cashfly at uh, Cashfly hosting at Cashfly.com. And then the podcast marketplace, which includes the A5, uh, sorry, uh, includes, John didn't put this on the thing, so now I'm making it up, not making it up from memory. We've got Yojimbo from Bare Bones. We have Gazelle.com. We have PDF Pen, both for Mac and iPad from Smile.com. And of course, uh, VMware uh, for VMware Fusion. All of that through Backbeat Media. And we certainly do thank you for your support. We look forward to seeing you on Thursday for the premium show. And most of all, don't get caught. Yeah. Made up.